Okay, so this that we're going to learn today is a sicha from the Rebbe, and it's pin- printed in the set of sichas, Lakute sichas, and it's in volume 19. And it, the sicha is a special dedication sicha to the theme of Shabbos Nachamu. That's actually the name of it. Last, the Shabbos after Tisha B'Av, which is the Shabbos that blesses the whole week that we're in now, is called the Shabbos of Comforting. And it's in the Lakut Sichas, volume 19, page 67. And let's learn this together. So, the Rebbe begins that the words, Nachamu, why do we call this whole the whole Shabbos a Nachamu? Because the Haftorah of this past Shabbos begins with those words, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. It's a book in the words of the prophet Isaiah, that may my nation, my nation will be comforted, comforted. That's what God says to us. He uses the word Nachamu twice. Nachum and Menachem, Nechemiah, all from the same words of comfort. So Nachamu means comfort, and it says it twice, These the words Nachamu. The Medrash that explains the verses, the Medrash says that the double expression Nachamu is because we were hit twice. We were struck twice. Therefore, the comforting also comes in a double expression. We were hit twice because the first temple was destroyed and then the second temple was destroyed. So we need to counter the hit with comfort. So you were hit twice, so therefore you get the comforting twice. Now, we have to understand what is the theme of double comfort. I get it the way the Medrash says it. It's two for two. But really, once you're comforted, what's the extra significance that you're comforted in a double with double? What's the double part really giving you here? Simply understood, the question really in simple words is that it's a, it's a novelty idea that you should be comforted twice because you were hit, therefore it was double, therefore you're going to be comforted double. In other words, what's the novelty here in being comforted twice? You could say being in other ways of saying, you don't have to say twice or double portion. You could say, you could use other words. I mean, I'm just going to throw out some examples. You could say, you should, you will be completely comforted. Right? Other, th- But what's the double expression? Nachamu, nachamu. So to understand this, the Rebbe will, let, let's go through it and we'll see. So to understand this, he gives us an explanation to first understand something based on the conclusion of the tractate in the Talmud called Tractate Makos. Now, in the Tractate Makos, Makos deals with different kinds of punishments of whippings. Makos means of whippings, spankings for different sins. A person could get a, a uh, for a rabbinical prohibition, a person could get a spanking of the courts. You can get 39 spankings or more. Anyways, it deals with this whole subject of spanking as a punishment, the whipping. And over there, at the end of that whole tractate, there's a story. And over there, we find the double expression also. So he says, by understanding what the double expression is over there in those stories, we'll understand the double expression that we have in the theme of comforting. 
what does it say over there? It says, Akiva Nichamtanu, Akiva Nichamtanu. It's also talking about the destruction of the temple. And it says twice, Akiva, you comforted us. Akiva, you comforted us. So again, you have the double expression of the word comforting. So we're making a juxtaposition of the two times, two places where we have the same idea of double expression in the word of comforting. Now, since we know a rule that everything from the written Torah is explained through the oral Torah, so too it will be here. By first understanding in the oral Torah what's the double expression, that will help us to understand what's the double expression of comfort that we have in the written Torah, the Tanakh in the books of the prophets. So let's go through the story in the end of Makos. So he says like this in, 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 uh, in paragraph 2, in section 2 of the Sikha, he says like this. In the end of tractate Makos, the Gemara, the Talmud tells the following. It was when Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, and Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Akiva, these four sages, they were going in the way. They were going on a path. And they heard the noise of the Roman uh, legions, Roman armies, noise of Rome. How far were they from the actual location of where the Roman soldiers were? They were a distance of 120 mil. A mil is almost a mile. Okay, so somewhere between a kilometer and a mile. They were 120 mill in distance away from there, but they were able to hear the entourage of this great noise of this mighty army heading out to do some really bad things to us, to destroy the temple. So they heard this. So naturally, the sages started to cry. They started to cry. Rabbi Akiva Mesachik. Rabbi Akiva started to smile or or laugh, according to different versions of interpreting these words. But he started to laugh. So they asked him, the three sages, Rabbi Gamliel, Eliezer ben Azariah, and Rabbi Yeshua, if you're writing down the names, they asked him, why are you laughing? So he said to them, well, why are you crying? So they said, what do you mean? These kushim, these kuthim, which is these idol worshippers, these non-Jews, they bow down to wood and they make all kinds of bad decrees through their, with their idol worships and they are sitting in comfort and peace and by us, our temple of God is burning on fire. Should we not cry? Of course we should cry. Look how terrible this is. Amr Lahen, so Rabbi Akiva said back to then, the actually said, that's why I'm laughing. Precisely for this reason that you're saying that you're crying, that's why I'm laughing. And he gave his, explained it with his logic. He said, if the people that go against the will of Hashem, look how good they're living in other words, even though they go against the will of Hashem, they're still living a good life. We, 
who are doing what Hashem wants, how much more so we're going to have this most amazing life. So that was his logic. It's true that you, in other words, let's explain this. It's true that you are seeing this in a way that how could it be that they're living in comfort when they're such sinners and we are watching our temple be burnt down. He says, look at it, you'll soon see. You're going to see that if, if this is the way it goes for people that don't do what Hashem wants, whoa, wait and see what's going to happen to those that do do what Hashem wants. So that's story number one. Then the tractate Marcus concludes with another story. It was another event time that these same sages, Rabbi Gamliel, Elazar ben Azariah, and Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Akiva, they were walking, they were going up, they were ascending to Jerusalem. As soon as they came to Mount Sophim, they ripped their garments. In other words, what happened? They obviously, they, were, they came to a place where they were able to see the ruins of the temple that it was destroyed. So they tore their clothes like one does when, you, when you're mourning a loss. As soon as they came to the temple mount itself, they were able to see a fox going out of the Holy of Holies. Now the Holy of Holies, that's the place where the ark used to stand. The place with the tablets. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest went inside there only once a year. So they saw a fox going out of there. So they started to cry. And at that moment, Rabbi Akiva was laughing. So they said to him, why are you laughing? So he said back to them, why are you crying? So they said, the place where the Torah says that if any stranger, Hazar HaKarev, will die, if a stranger goes into the Holy of Holies, you will not come out alive. And now, out of that same space, foxes are going, are coming out of there. Should we not cry? So he answered back. He said, Rabbi Akiva said, that is precisely why I'm laughing. Because it says in a verse, there's a verse that says in in, 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 let me show you where it is. There's a verse that says, there's a verse that says in Isaiah, it says like this, I will summon trustworthy witnesses for myself. In other words, I'm going to set, summon two prophets that are trustworthy, and they're going to be my witnesses. Who are these two prophets? Uriah the Kohen and Zechariah ben Yivarechio. Now, what is the connection between these two prophets, Uriah and Zechariah? Uriah was a prophet that lived during the times of the first temple. And Zechariah was a prophet that lived during the time of the second temple. So why is Isaiah combining these two prophets together? I'm going to bring forth two witnesses, Uriah and Zechariah. But one second, they lived way different generations. One lived during first temple, one lived during second temple. Say so says the reason why they're brought in a verse as witnesses together, it's because the verse wants to tell you that they're Prophecies are actually dependent one on the other. 
Something that Zechariah said is a prophecy that's founded on something that Uriah said. What did the prophet Uriah say? Uriah said that he said, Lachain, therefore, because of you, Zion, Zion will be plowed over like a field. In other words, that Jerusalem will be destroyed. It will come one heap of rubble and the Temple Mount will become like a stone heap in the forest. In other words, he's saying is that this field, the temple will be brought down into like a raked field. It'll be raked down flat. That's what Uriah said. He gave this prophecy in the time of the first temple. In other words, if we're not going to shape up, God will destroy the temple and it will plow down like a field. But then came a second prophet and he said, Zechariah, the second prophet said, Oid! There's going to soon come a time that old men and old women will once again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. In other words, it will be so peaceful, so majestic in Jerusalem that even the old men and old women will be able to be sitting outside. So that means it's a prophecy that it's all going to be restored. So, says Rabbi Akiva said, you want to know why I'm laughing? Let me explain this to you. As long as the prophecy of Uriah, the first prophet, was never fulfilled. In other words, the temple wasn't destroyed yet. He said it's going to come down and be raked down like a field. So his prophecy wasn't fulfilled. So I was concerned, maybe the second prophet from Zechariah also may not never happen. Maybe we're never going to merit the day's where we're going to have a beautiful calmness in Jerusalem. But now that I see that the first prophecy of Uriah was fulfilled, that the temple was destroyed and flattened out like a field, now I see that the second prophecy is also going to happen. The Mashiach is going to come, and we're going to have again, Zekanim with Zekanis, the elderly men and women are going to be sitting in the streets in Yerushalayim. So that's the way he said it, Rabbi Akiva said it. Now when he said this, he opened their eyes to this idea that, wow, there really will be soon-to-be days where it's going to be majestic, like unbelievable. Therefore, they turned to him and they said, they said, Akiva nichamtanu, Akiva nichamtanu. Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. In other words, you are the one, you just gave us such good hope now, and you comforted us. So now we get it, why you're laughing, but you gave us such great comfort. Now, what's the obvious question that we all have? So even though the Gemara, it's obviously why it has double expression. So now, even though there is a rule that we don't, from stories in the Talmud, are called agadics. They're like, they're story tales. We have a rule that they're very nice to learn these agadic sides of the Talmud, which are stories and tales and fascinating, interesting stuff. But ultimately, you can't really learn a halacha from these stories always. They're very difficult. Some of the stories are, are, are far-fetched even sometimes. You can't really learn a halacha. The only thing is that in our case, even if you say you can't normally learn a halacha from these kind of agadic sections of the Talmud, but a a way of thinking we sure, we certainly could learn. 
It teaches you. That's why we learn hear about these stories from the sages. It teaches us how to think, how to behave, and so on. In addition to that, we also have sometimes stories, like in our case, a story actually tells you a, a way how to practice something. Like you see in our case that there's a rule that halacha always goes like Rabbi Akiva. There's such a rule. So it's understood that there's many ways how to think. But in our case, look, they saw from Mount Sophim. And what did they do? Karubigdam. They tore their garments. So you could learn from this an actual halacha from the way they did it. That if you see the temple in ruin, you should tear your garment. So in this, according to this, we have to understand what were they really arguing? Was this an actual argument in halacha? Should you tear your garments for the destruction of the temple? Or do you say, no, why should I tear it? We're going to be having a new temple coming up soon. In other words, they're, they're having a, it turns out, if you think about it, there's a drastic difference of opinion between Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Akiva. From one side to the other side. These guys are laughing, crying, and these guys laughing. So there's a major difference in how to approach something here. Even though they agreed, Akiva Nichamtanu, Akiva Nichamtanu, twice that you comforted us, it's understood that they at least had a thinking in the beginning, an initial thinking that they're supposed to cry. That means that even in Halacha, there's an, a, a, a place that maybe you should cry. And especially in the first story, they didn't even say the words, Akiva, you comforted us. So we have to understand what is going on over here that we have it twice. What is going on over here that it seems such a drastic approach. So let's understand deeper what is the difference between the views that this guy, they rip their clothes, he doesn't rip clothes, they laugh, they cry. It seems so you know, far apart, the two views. So in the third section, he explains, says like this, we also have to understand many more questions. And he asks now eight questions. For those of you that were there, Shabbos, we only touched upon two questions, but let's, we're going to learn now the whole Sikha, so we're going to understand all eight questions and you'll see how beautiful it is, how amazing it is, how the Rebbe pulls apart a story and how he puts it together so beautifully. It's like, it's, it's mind-boggling how this gets done. So he says like this, many questions, and he starts like this. Number one, what was really Rabbi Akiva's question, why are you crying? It's obviously why, obvious why you would cry. If you would hear the thunder noise of the Romans coming, and they are actually the people that are going to destroy the temple, and in the second story, they actually saw the temple in ruin, they saw a fox coming out of the Holy of Holies, obviously that has to bring out an amazing reaction of mourning and crying. So what's Rabbi Akiva even asking them? Why are you crying? It's obvious why they're crying. Who wouldn't cry for such a thing? Number two, that's one question. Number two, more is not understood. In the second story, it says that they came to Mount Sophim and they ripped their garments. It's obvious that even Rabbi Akiva would have ripped their garments because it said they got there and they ripped their garments. That means he also felt the ruins of the temple. So why is he asking me, why are you crying? He obviously knows himself why. It sounds like it says clearly that they got the mounts of him and they 
ripped their garments. Number three, they quoted a verse to Rabbi Akiva and they said that Hazar Hakarev Yumas, a foreigner that comes close into the, a stranger, a foreigner that comes into the Holy of Holies will die. But you know something interesting? That verse actually is not talking about going into the Holy of Holies. That's talking about a stranger, meaning an Israelite, not a coin, going into any sections of the Beis HaMikdash and doing their service, a service. They were trying to emphasize the severity of going into the Holy of Holies, not just anywhere in the temple, because they saw the fox coming out of the Holy of Holy area. So they should have brought a different verse that says that one, that, that not at every moment should a person go into the Holy of Holies. In other words, only a Kohen Gadol could go in on Yom Kippur. But he, a Kohen Gadol should not, is not allowed to go in even any other time of the year. So they should have quoted that verse that says that, look, the place that you're not allowed to go in all the time, that's the place. Why did they bring down a verse that has to do with the whole temple, not just the Holy of Holies? Number four, we said that Rabbi Akiva said he was worried that maybe the prophet, the prophecy of Zechariah won't happen. He said, till I see that the prophecy of Uriah didn't happen, I was worried that maybe the prophecy, the promise of goodness from the prophet Zechariah wouldn't happen. What's going on over here? How could he even think that? We know that every single thing that God says for the positive, Hashem never regrets what he said. And even if he regrets it, he doesn't retract his words. See, there's two kinds of prophecies. There's a prophecy of negativity where Hashem says something bad's going to happen. And then there's other prophecy where Hashem says something good's going to happen. If it's a prophecy regarding something bad's going to happen, if the people repent, Hashem says, okay, I'll retract what I said I'm going to do. But if on something good, Hashem never retracts. Even if people later do sin, He doesn't retract. So in our context here, why was Rabbi Akiva worried that Hashem may not fulfill the promise? He doesn't retract a positive promise. If he promised through Zechariah that there's going to be a day and old, old women and men, are, men and women are going to be standing in the streets of Yerushalayim, of course that's going to happen. Why was he worried that that prophecy wouldn't be fulfilled? Number five, why did Rabbi Akiva bring the prophecy regarding that Zion will be raked down like a field? And no other previous prophecy regarding the destruction or redemption. There's many other prophecies. Why did he bring that one? Number six. Why does the Gemara, the Talmud, bring down all the names of the sages? It could have just said, we want to make emphasis about Rabbi Akiva that he laughed. So it could have just said that we find in many places, Rabbi Akiva and the elders. Why do you have to tell me all their names? Number seven. Why did the sages only in the second story respond, Akiva Nichantanu, you made you comforted us? Why didn't they respond the same thing in the first story? They should have also said there, Akiva Nichamtanu. Number eight. Why the double expression? 
Akiva Nichamtanu, and again Akiva Nichamtanu. Well, there is a Marsha. Marsha is a very famous commentary on the Talmud. And he, that's knowing that he's, I think they say that he was the last one to write commentary on the Talmud, that he wrote it with Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit. He was able to hear it with great vision. So he writes that the double expression is because two things that happened. In other words, technically for both stories. But the Rebbe says that doesn't really work well because they were both way, the stories happened at different periods. One was when they were going on the way when the Romans were only still coming. The second one is talking about when they were going up to Jerusalem. But in the conclusion, it says it together. Akiva nichamtan, akiva nichamtanu. Twice in a row it says that you have comforted us. It doesn't make sense if the stories happened at two different periods of time. If you're saying that it goes on these two stories, it should have said each one by each story. Now, in section four of the Sicha, he says we could explain this like this. Maybe we could explain this simply. That in both stories we see a similar thread of the opinion of Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Lezer, and Rabbi Yeshua on one side, and Rabbi Akiva on the other side. Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Lezer, Ben Azai, and Rabbi Yeshua. In every situation, they saw the negative that was going on. And Rabbi Akiva, he also saw the ultimate good that's in it. And Rabbi Akiva goes according to his opinion. As we know, the famous story elsewhere, in Tractate Brachas, the famous story, that Rabbi Akiva said, always a person should be accustomed to saying that whatever Hashem does, He does it for the good. Like you remember the whole story, we once spoke about the whole story, Rabbi Akiva was traveling to a city, and he took his donkey, and he took his rooster, and he took his candle, he needed donkey to travel with, he needed his rooster to wake him up in the morning to, to, to daven, say his shema, and he needed the candle to be able to learn Torah by night. And he came to the city and the gates of the city were closed. So what did he do? He stayed in the forest overnight. While he was there in the forest, a lion came and ate up his donkey. Another animal came and ate up his rooster. And the winds came and put out his candle. And every time he said the same thing. Kol ma'da'avid rahmana latav avid. Whatever Hashem does is for the good. So he's famous for that. So we see... An actual scene here. These three sages in both stories seem as like they always see the bad of it, what they see in front of them. Rebekah Kiva always sees the good that's going to be out of this. Hence, his known quote that he's famous for is every person should be accustomed to always say that whatever God does is for the good. So based on this, we could explain these two stories here. Why they come one after the next even though they can happen in different locations, and even though they happen in different periods of time. It's not just because both stories happen with the same people, because it's, but it's because, to tell you that both stories, we find the same approach of Rabbi Akiva, that he would see things, even now, currently, he would see only the good that was coming out of it. In other words, even though the goods kind of come out later, he saw that immediate now also that what's destruction right now is actually something good to, is good is coming out of this. Well, if you want to explain it like this, in section 5 of the Sicha, he says, if you want to explain it like this, then I have three questions the Rebbe asks. 
What's his three questions? He says, first of all, why do I need to know all three sages? What's the novelty of Rabbi Akiva's opinion in both stories to tell me that whatever, whatever Hashem does is for the good? Tell it to me in one story, I'll already know his opinion. Why do you have to tell it to me in multiple stories? And second point is, he says, you should always, a, a person should always accustom themselves to say this. This is a rule that we find that nobody argues about this. It's even established like this in the code of Jewish law that you're always supposed to say that on something that it's good. Well, in that case, it's not understood. Why did the other sages, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Lazar ben Azayah, Rabbi Yeshua, why did they not see it good? If this is something that nobody argues and this is the concluding law, halacha, that you're supposed to always see something for the good, why did they cry then? Why didn't they say the same point that it's all for the good? And in the second story, they even admit, they said, look, Akiva, you comfort us. Which means that they don't regret their view. They're just saying that you comforted us. But not that what their view was wrong. So what's going on? Are you, are you always supposed to say that it's good? Well, how come they didn't say it's good? And another question is, according to this, Rabbi Akiva, in his answer, he has the whole point that whatever Hashem does is for the good. So he could have just said that. He didn't even need to bring any extra proof. But yet he goes and he brings this whole proof of the prophets. There was two prophets. There was Uri on the Temple 1. There was Chari on Temple 2. And the Yeshaya connects them both together. It says that it's all connected as one thing. The, negative, the bad prophecy, the good prophets, all one thing. So what's going on over here? He could have just answered simply, whatever Hashem does is for the good. That's why I'm laughing. So to understand all of this, we're now going to go into a novel way in how to think. And this is like an approach that all of us, human people, need to think in a certain way. And once we can understand this approach and how to think, the whole story starts to make sense to us. Let's explain the simple text of the Gemara, he says, in section 6 of the Sicha. The reason... And the wonder that Rabbi Akiva had when he said those words, we asked a question. How could he ask, why are you crying? It's obvious why you're crying. What do you mean? You know, a person comes up from a doctor and says, my doctor told me, oh, this is terrible news. You're crying. Of course I understand why you're crying. What are you going to say? Why are you crying? So the reason why and the wonder Rabbi Akiva had, why are you crying? It is the reason to explain this. Since... They started to cry only then when they heard the noise of the Roman army and not before is understood from this that their crying was not because of the news itself that the Romans are so strong. That's not what made them cry. They always they knew that even before. Before the Romans got on their way, they already knew the mightiness of this army. The fact that they even were traveling to Rome, some of the commentaries say that the reason why they were going there seemingly was simply because they wanted to try to annul the decree of the Romans against the Jews and the difficult exile in general. So it wasn't, so obviously they knew how strong the Romans, what Romans were. So too in the second story, their crying wasn't because the temple itself was destroyed. 
Because everybody knows for the destruction of the temple, you rip your garments. And they must have done that even before they, they already ripped their garments. So the reason why they were crying was because of something. The story says, because they saw a fox coming out of it, they started to cry. Not when they saw from Mount Sophie, and they only ripped their garments. It doesn't say that they cried. When they got closer to the on Temple Mount and they saw the fox coming out, that's when they started to cry. That means that the starting to cry wasn't on the initial step of the destruction. It was only when they saw the fox coming out. And in the first story, it wasn't on their initial hearing the noise of the Romans because they already knew the strength of the Romans. So it was only after a certain point when they started to hear the noise, they started to cry. In the second story, when they started to see the fox, they started to cry. That's what Rabbi Akiva said to them. Why are you crying? In other words, what happened now that you started to cry? Why did you start to cry now? The tragic what's going on was already before. They already heard of, they, I mean, they already were going to Rome to make peace and they already knew how bad it is. They should have been crying already before. What happened now that you heard the noise that you started crying? In the second story, what happened now that you saw the fox coming out? When you were on Mount Sophim and you saw the temple destroyed down to flat like a field, you didn't cry. You only ripped your garments. So what happened now that you started to cry? That was what Rabbi Akiva's question was. Obviously, it was, his question was not, why are you crying? His question was, why are you starting to cry only now? What did they answer him? In story one, they answered him, the Goyim are sitting there and partying, and our temple is being destroyed. What does this mean? The fact that the Roman the government of the Romans was in a certain level of peace and calmness in there by them. That didn't irk the sages to the point to cry. Okay, so the Goyim are living in peace, Zolzain. That didn't irk them to the point to cry. On the contrary, when Malchus Romi, when the, when the Ro- Roman government was at its highest peak of strength, actually, it was good for the Jews. You know why it was good for the Jews? There's a verse that says, which means that my temple, the Torah says, it's in the book of Isaiah, that the temple will fall only by the mighty, through the mighty people. Why? Because it shows Hashem wants to soften the blow for the Jews. Imagine a weak nation comes and destroys the temple. It would be devastating, embarrassing for us that a weak nation could destroy us. When the mightiest nations of all the world will come against us and take us down, hey, it's maybe not as insulting. Yes, of course, you don't want it to happen. But in other words, to soften the blow a bit the verse says that Jerusalem, the temple, will only come down through the mightiest because it's to soften the blow. Now we understand why they answered. They didn't start to stress that the Roman emperor are the ones that are destroying the temple. That's not what they were trying to say. 
that even though they were trying to destroy the temple, therefore they're still strong. Can we understand that it's only the mighty that Hashem will allow to come destroy the temple because He wants it to be not so, not so painful for us. Because it was for our good sake and that we shouldn't have to be that embarrassed. There, the sages, their complaint was that the Romans were in a certain situation of comfort relaxness, security, and peace in a time when a God's temple is being burnt. And that's a desecration for God in addition that it's a desecration for the Jews. God's temple, Elokein, Bayis, Elokein, Ragle, Elokein, Nisrat, Saruf. Hashem's temple is being burnt. So it's a desecration against God. Even more, since the Romans' whole strength was only that it should fulfill the verse that the temple will come down through the mighty, so if so, why is the, are the Romans still a mighty people? Even once the temple was destroyed and burnt down, at that point, the Romans don't have to stay anymore the mighty people. They don't have to stay anymore the nation that's living in calmness. That's his point. So when the sages said to Rabbi Akiva, why are we crying? It's not because we're now hearing the noise of the Romans. I don't care that they're living great and they're so powerful. It's better for us. They can be the But now that the temple is destroyed, why are they, they now living in cover? Once it was destroyed, Hashem could have wiped them away while his temple, after his temple was destroyed. And the same thing is in the second story. When they saw the fox coming out of the Holy of Holies, at that point, they saw a desecration of God's name and of Israel's name, of the people of Israel. The place that says a foreigner that goes in will die. No Jew cannot get even close. Even a high priest is not allowed to go only once a year. And now, even foxes are coming through. In other words, the point of their argument was, it's true that it, there was a decree that the temple should be destroyed and, the, and that it was destroyed and that the Jews had to be chased out of, into an, out of Israel into an exile. But why do you have to desecrate Hashem's name and the name of Israel so badly? First of all, how, is you, how are you desecrating the name of God? Because you're allowing that the Romans should still live a life of comfort even after the temple was destroyed. And the second and second of all, as the prophet Uri said, that the temple Zion will be raked down to a field, it could have been fulfilled through other parts of the temple. Why did, why did the Holy of Holies has to be raked down to, to, to the to the to a flat field? In other words, if a foreigner can't go on the temple, so why did they have to fulfill it in the entire temple? They could that prophecy could have been fulfilled partially also. Part of the temple could have been flattened, would have been enough. So on this complaint of the sages of Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Lazar ben Zayin, Rabbi Yeshua, on this Rabbi Akiva came and he answered. He said like this: If this is what happens to those that 
that sin against God, how much more so it's going to be a reward to those that do what Hashem wants. It's true that the Romans are living in this comfort while the temple was burnt down, and this is a desecration against God and against Israel. But through this, we'll see the reward even greater to those that do what Hashem wants. That means Rabbi Kiva was saying that the success of the Romans in desecrating it will be also the sign for good to come out for us. And in the second story, since the prophecy of the destruction of the temple was being fulfilled in its highest level, it was fulfilled that even the Holy of Holies was taken down. And to the point that a fox is going out of the Holy of Holies. That's a proof that the prophecy for the redemption from Zechariah is going to happen in the highest level of decree. In other words, if the blow has to happen in the worst way, then the reward way and the redemption way will happen and it has to have to happen in the highest possible way of goodness. Just like, think of this, what's the wording of the verse? A plowed field. What's the point to plow a field? When you plow it, it looks like you're ruining it. But what happens? That's what makes the produce grow the best. As we say in the second paragraph of the Shema, the Safta Degonecha. By doing mitzvahs, Hashem promises us you're going to go out to collect the grain. That means you're going to be able to collect even a hundred times the amount. Because, like it says when Mashiach comes, you're going to plant and it's going to grow the same day. That's how amazing it's going to be. That's the that's the analogy of saying the temple will be raked down to the ground like a field because from raking it down, that's where it pops up the most. The greatest results of a field is when it's raked really well. Now we can understand why he used the prophet used those words Tzion Sada Tacharash that Zion will has a field that was flattened out like that. The whole point, like we just said, is of raking it is for it to come out even much better. So when Rabbi Akiva sees the destruction, he sees it like a field being raked down. Let's use an example of construction. When somebody goes to construction in your house and you gut out the whole house, let's say, it's through that that you get to see the greatest beauty once it's all finished. So the mess is there to help it grow. Same thing in a field and even more. You rake it and the best will come out and that's going to be the ultimate sprouting out from the field is when Mashiach comes. Now in number nine, he says, we can now also better understand the different approaches and why this was an argument between these sages. And with this, we're also going to understand why we have to know the names of the characters in the story. We couldn't just say Rabbi Akiva and the other elders or other sages. Let's understand a different approach. You could understand this based on a general concept in Jewish law of an argument in, in, in Jewish law that goes like this. How do you see something? Do you see something based on present or do you see something based on future? How do you rule a halacha? Let's give an example. Seven days before Yom Kippur, we all probably remember that there's a fast day called the fast of Gedalia. The day after Rosh Hashanah, there's a fast called the fast of Gedalia. That's the day when the big general Gedalia ben Achikam, when he was killed and it was led to hundreds of thousands of Jews to die. So we fast on that day. Now, seven days later is Yom Kippur. 
So now there's a question that's brought down in the halachic books that says like this. What happens if there's a person who's sick and doctors say that if you're going to fast, the rabbinical instituted fast of the fast of Gedalia, you will not be able to fast on Yom Kippur in seven days from now. Are you allowed to fast on the Gedalia fast? Which is only something that was instituted by the early sages? Even though soon, in seven days, you won't be able to fast a biblical instructed commandment to fast for Yom Kippur. So in other words, how do you look at it? Do you look at what's today? Right now, you're healthy to fast, so fast. What's going to be in a week? That's not my problem, how to, how to view the future. Right now, focus on today. That may be a good approach. You're focusing on today and you're doing what the sage asked you to do, fast on the Gedalia fast. But that may come at expense that you won't be able to fast on the, on the biblical commandment fast of Yom Kippur. So what, 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 what weighs over what? Do you look at now or do you look at the future? Now this, if you think of this argument regarding this fasting, that actually may explain to us the argument of Rabbi Akiva and the other sages regarding, do you look at today or do you look at the future? Regarding how to look at the temple's destruction. Do you look at it today? Oy vey, it's destroyed, so cry your heart out. Or do you say no? Are you kidding? Mashiach's coming. Well, if you want to understand this, we have to understand this. Look at the views of the two of the sages. Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Azmar Nazari, Rabbi Yeshua said, that, no, right now it's a desecration of God's name. What's going to happen later does not dominate, does not dominate what's happening now. You have to look at everything the way it's right now. Since right now it's the opposite of sanctifying God's name and opposite of sanctifying the name of the Jews, so bad you have to cry. Rabbi Kiva says, no, even now you have to, now dominate is dominated by the future. Therefore, he says that even though now it's a desecration, but since soon it's going to come out unbelievable. Dedication for God's name. Therefore, that dominates now and therefore even now you should laugh. It's, a, it, it's two different views, right? It's like, do you fast today, a rabbinical fast, and I won't be able to do the biblical? No, no, you say, no, I have to look at only the bigger picture. Rabbi Kiva says, look at the bigger picture. Now, with this, in number 10, he explains that with this we can understand the argument, the way they each had a general approach. What is more important to our subject here? Let's ask another question. You could always ask a question like this. What's more important, the present or the future, when it comes to differences in Jewish law? For example... There's a, the, the, the sages, it's brought down in some of the halachic books that bring down different arguments of subjects. And they ask a, a question like this about a baby's bris. What day are you supposed to do a bris for a baby? Eighth day. Right? Now, what happens if the bris is, let's just say, tomorrow morning on a Thursday morning? In the morning, it's going to be very difficult for you to get a big crowd why? People have to run to business. Since it's a summer day, let's make the bris 6 p.m. It's still the eighth day. It's still light outside. And then you can have a massive crowd. So what's better? Do you say 
let's let's do the bris now in the morning because there's a rule of thumb. Whenever you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, you should run to do the mitzvah. Don't postpone a mitzvah. But on the other hand, maybe I could do the mitzvah better by having a bigger crowd. Because you all know the rule that the, it's nicer for a king when there's a bigger crowd. So when you do a mitzvah with a big crowd, it beautifies the mitzvah much greater. There's the expression of Allah, is, am hadras melech. with many people, it beautifies the king even more. So which one dominates? Do the mitzvah right away based on the principles, Rizin maktim in the mitzvah, run, rush to do a mitzvah, or based on another principle, Bereivam hadras melech. And there's many points about this in many mitzvahs. Do you do a mitzvah now and you did the mitzvah right away, or do you do it better if you wait to do it at a later point? By the way, you have this example in many cases. Let's say uh, you have an opportunity to buy a lulav and an etrog, but if I wait another week, oh, I can buy even a much nicer one. But it's a mitzvah to buy one sooner. So what do you do? Do you do it sooner, not as not as beautiful, or do you wait and do it more beautiful? But then you waited, you didn't do the mitzvah yet, you didn't take the opportunity yet. And this becomes the actual, the quintessential issue of the argument between these sages. That Jews will receive their reward for doing what Hashem wants us to do. And when the redemption comes, we'll sanctify Hashem's name. Now let's bring it into our story. The question's like this. When the Roman emperors are worshipping idols and they're sitting in comfort and partying and our temple is being burnt, and the fox is coming out of the Holy of Holies in a place where it says if a stranger goes in, they're going to die. That means there is missing something of sanctifying God's name. The Romans are powerful. They're parting. And our temple is destroyed. The fox is coming out. So we're missing something of sanctifying Hashem. On the other hand, by Jews, their reward it comes from a much greater way as the prophet said. But that's going to come with some time. So according to Rabbi Gamaliel, they see right now there's missing something. There's missing sanctification of God. It's not important only what's going to happen later for a hider, for a better way, better sanctification. Right now there's a disaster. But Rabbi Akiva said, no, let's focus on the beauty of the mitzvah, the general concept of the mitzvah, which is going to come out later. That is dominant, and that's why he left. And we need to have both stories, he says in section 11 here. In more detail, the need to have both of these arguments is because there's, a, there's something beautiful that we learn in the second story in three areas. In the area that whatever God says is going to be for the good. Whatever God does is for the good. Do you, do you equate now over what's going to happen in the future? Or another point was, is the detail of a mitzvah, does it overtake the beauty of a mitzvah that's going to happen later? Rabbi Rabbi Akiva says, whatever Hashem does is for the good, meaning is you have to look, even though now it looks bad, but the goal and the outlook has to be about the good. Like the Gemara said, Rabbi Akiva himself, like I mentioned the story before, he lost his donkey, he lost his rooster, his candle went out. 
But all this turned out to be the good. Why? Because in the next morning, he found out that the city that he would have went into was ransacked by bad people. And if they would have discovered him in the forest from his animal making noise or his candle being lit, they would have killed him too. So it actually turns out that the locked gates and all this burning down and eating his animals all turned out to be the best for him. That means the story itself was painful, but it was the intention was for a better good that's going to come out soon. Now we understand why there's a halacha, there's a special law that the Gemara says that if something bad happens to you, for example, a massive flood of flush of water comes and floods out your fields and it destroys all your crop, you're supposed to say, Baruch Dayon Hamas. Ah, you had a flood, your whole business went down in the ground. Now it's bad, so you say Baruch Dayon Hamas. But since you're supposed to also say that whatever Hashem does is for the good, therefore they all agreed to Rabbi Akiva. And that's why they said, you comfort us, because we agree with you on your view. In other words, what we see from this is that the bat itself, that a fox is coming out of the temple, Rabbi Akiva didn't just say it's something that you're going to see in the future. He saw in this itself, the fox itself coming out, he saw the good. You notice a verse that we said in Eicha, in chapter 4 there, it says, in verse, for chapter 4, verse 11, it says there that, you, that the temple's destruction extinguished my anger, Hashem says. Why? Because Hashem let out His anger on the wood and the stones and didn't lay out His anger on the people. You know, the Medrash tells us a story on the, on the verse in the, in the Tehillim. In, in the book of Psalms, in chapter 90, 79, over there it says that Asaf, Asaf was the, the choir master that King David appointed. So there's 10 chapters in the Tehillim that are called the Songs of Asaf. So over there the measure says, why does it say the Songs of Asaf? Why didn't it say, when he speaks about the destructions of the temple, he should have said the crying of Asaf. Why does it say the Songs of Asaf? So the measure says a beautiful thing. It says, for example, there was once a king that made a beautiful p- preparations for his one and only child's wedding. He made a chuppah out of wood, stunning chuppah. Anyways, he made this whole big fancy wedding, and the day of the chuppah, his son said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not getting married. What did the king do? He ripped down the poles, he ripped down the chuppah, he ripped down the whole thing. He was so mad, he destroyed the whole place. So we came and we say to the king, you know, you're so mad at your son. But one thing I'm so grateful, that you let out all your anger on the wood, the chuppah, the hall, you destroyed the whole thing. You could have killed your son because you were so mad. So we the Medrash says, this is when it says that God's anger was extinguished. What does it mean? Because Hashem let the temple be destroyed instead of allowing himself to destroy the Jews, which was the cause technically for the temple to be destroyed because of the sins. So in a way, there was a, that's what Rabbi Akiva saw. He saw the positive side in this coming down. So in the first story when he was laughing, he said everything, it's like saying, that was the accomplishment that everything what Hashem does is for, is for the good. Now, 
This is the point. Number one, we say and we know that everything is for the good. We don't know exactly how because it's not revealed, but we know it's good. Number two, it's bad, but there's good in it. You may not see it in the beginning, but you know that it's good, like Rabbi Akiva's story with the rooster and his case, his donkey, his rooster and his candle. In the beginning, he wouldn't have been saved, but now he was saved. And that's why he says, if this Hashem lets the Romans go like this, they're the ones that don't do what God wants and they get to such tranquil life, we're going to get even more. And we see this because he says, so too it will be for those that do what Hashem wants. Because there's a gain in this itself. Now this all, he brings out now, is in the other questions that we asked. We asked a number of other questions. First of all, that we said what's going to happen later. Later, Now what's going to happen later is important to what's going to happen now. Later you're going to have a bigger crowd for the bris. Says Rabbi Akiva, wait, because there it's bigger. It's going to be better. It's much more royalty for the king. In other words, he says that it's better to wait and do the mitzvah properly because that's the test for the moment right now. He says the future better is what affects the now. The future, we're going to be redeemed, that affects the now of the destruction, that that's also good. In other words, what's happening now that feels like it's missing something but that shows on the greatness that's what's going to come out of it. And this is the story with our second story we said. That according to Rabbi Akiva, it's not just in which one is dominating. He says the now is being affected by the future. The great sanctification of God's name that's going to come out in this time of our exile now, that now the temple will be, will be built after 2,000 years, that's dominant to that moment when he saw it then. And in the second story, he says in section 13 here, that this is the reason why in the second story that he, they said twice the words. Now we're going to understand why they said twice the words, Akiva Nichamton, Akiva Nichamton, you bring us comfort. And not in the first story. Because the, the novelty, the greatness of understanding this is only in the second story when they saw the fox coming out of the Holy of Holies. According to Rabbi Akiva, over the other sages, that they started to cry is mainly in two points. According to their opinion, they saw only the bad, which brings to the reason to cry. According to Rabbi Akiva, it's not just that you have to look at it as in a good way, that there's going to come the redemption, what's going to come out of it, but even more, he says. The point of the redemption is, is not that it's its own time in history. It's actually the, the raking of the field, that itself, in other words, the destruction itself, the raking itself, is the greatness of what's going to come out and sprout out of the ground. Not that the raking is bad and that's good. No, the raking itself is the good because that's what brings out the good. And that's why it's a double expression of comfort. Number one, it's a greater, more beautiful way to see the future. And number two, the greatness and the comfort is in the way you see it now. And that's when the first prophet said, Uriah said, that I'm going to bring you 
a, a pair of witnesses, Yeshaya says, I'm going to bring you a pair of witnesses, both prophets, Uriah the Kohen and Zechariah. It's dependent on each other because the verse itself says that they're not two separate things, two different prophecies. Even though they were a few hundred years apart, it's not two separate things. This one said it's going to be destroyed down to like a field rate. And this one says it's going to be, be the, the, the elders, the old men and women are going to be sitting in the streets there. It goes together. It's one prophecy. It's one dependency on each other. In the second story, when Rekiva started to laugh, it's because he, the reason that he said, that, look what's going to happen to those that do what Hashem wants. It's not just that that's the opinion of Rebbe Akiva. The other sages stayed in their opinion. And in other words, that was his opinion. Rabbi, sorry, it was Rabbi Akiva's opinion that look what's going to happen is going to be so good for those that listen to Hashem. Especially that you have to learn this, the attitude that the Oisei say those that do what Hashem wants, and the second point corresponding to those that don't do what Hashem wants. He didn't even bring any proof for this, because this was his opinion. That was the way Rabbi Akiva always built himself to think that this is positive, and you don't even need a proof for it. Now with this, we still didn't answer the question why the Gemara brings down their names. Who cares who they were? You could have just said there was three other sages. Why do I have to know that it was Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Lezman, and Rabbi Yeshua? Why do I have to know who it is? Ah, he says, in the names lies the depth. Who were these people? Rabbi Gamliel was the Nasi. The Nasi means he was the prince, the leader. He came from the tribe of Judah. He was the head of the Jewish people. And his generation. Who was Rabbi Lezer ben Azariah? He was a Kohen. It says that he, in the Talmud Brachas, Rabbi Lezer ben Azariah was 10 generations, one after the next, all the way back to Ezra. Rabbi Yeshua, he was a Levite. His job was to sing in the choir in the temple. And Rabbi Akiva, who was he? He was a descendant from converts. He was a descendant from converts. Now, what do you see over here in knowing about who these people were? People were. We're seeing a whole deep difference in how to think. Rabbi Akiva says, don't look at what, don't get stuck at what you see in front of your face. Think of the bigger picture. Don't get stuck on what you see. You see a fire, you see something bad, don't get stuck there. Why Rabbi Akiva? Because specifically him that comes from such a kind of background. A person that sees the world from the bottom up. He's the one that could see it like that. A person that was born as a Jew what they call them, the FFBs, the from, from birth, they can't see it so good. A Kohen, a Levite, and an Israelite can't see it like that. For them, it's a novelty to see something like in a positive way, even though right now it's bad. How am I supposed to see it later? But this is the difference in the way they did everything in Halacha. And Halacha is the, is the final concluding way of life. The detail in the mitzvah, 
or doing it even in a more beautiful way. Rabbi Akiva, that was a descendant from converts, he himself only started to learn Torah when he turned 40. You remember the story when he was going with his wife and they saw the water dripping in the, from the fall and he said if a drip could break through this rock after so many years, make a hole. If I bang, 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 bang in my head, I can make a dent in my brain. And his wife supported him and went along with it and encouraged him to go learn. And from 40 years old, he started to learn the olive base. So if, if Rabbi Akiva would have looked at everything the way it is, the way you see it in front of you, he would have never made a move. If he would have looked into the mirror when he was 40 years old, he would have said, I'm a shomazel. I could never succeed in life. But he didn't do that. He looked at the bigger picture. What's the outcome? How do I see the future? Ah, the future dominated his presence. And it became clear to him that if you bang and crack, you, make, you could make a hole in a rock. Water could do it. So therefore, I could start learning Torah. Now he concludes in section 15 like this. And now we understand why we had to have the names, to appreciate the difference of the view. People that are born a Jew, for them naturally, they look at everything the way it is now. But a person who worked on himself made the commitment. It's so much more deeper, more internalized. You know, a lot of people say that converts are more sincere about their Yiddishkeit than a person that's born into it. And born into it, you take it for granted. Use the analogy of materialisms of a world. A person who's born into wealth doesn't always, is not motivated usually to work hard. They don't care for the dollar. They blow it. They they all kinds of problems. The person that had to work for it. So how much more so? You can't even compare it to money, but how much more so when it comes to the soul? The person that had to study and work and learn and break their head, they appreciate the Yiddish guy much more. They see the bigger picture and they don't get boggled down on the little present moment right now. With this, he says, now we can understand the greatness and why comfort comes in a double portion. Nachamu, nachamu ami. Double portion, the prophet said. Comfort, comfort, it will, is my people. Yes, the general tone of the exile was in a double bang on our heads. But the double crushing of the temples was the destruction. It was the opposite of sanctifying God's name and the Jewish people's name. But it was so, it was terrible. And more than the, the desecration of the temple itself, as we see many things that came out of it, that people were bowing there and the foxes came out of the thing. But based on this, we see the double comfort. In addition to the comfort that we're soon going to see the great good that's going to come out of it, from, the, from out of what? Out of the destruction and the exile. In order that it should be revealed later, we're also going to have a revelation of an additional point. Of the of the de- of the destruction, in other words, not just we're going to be able to see that it was worth it was worth the whole descent of the exile just to come to something better later, but we're going to realize that it itself 
has an addition. It's not just like, oh, the temple was destroyed and the temple was rebuilt to the same exact size. In other words, that, that the outcome is just as good as the destruction. No, it's going to be even greater than the destruction. As the verse says, Hashem, Hashem says, you wait. <laughs> you see what I have in store for you. The interest there's an interest piling up over these 2,000 years. If Hashem had in store for us this unbelievable goodness, it was collecting interest all the years. So it's not just a comfort that it's one for one you did, or two for two, you destroyed the temple and you give me back one. No, it's going to be non-comparison even to the way it was. And that's why it's double. We have this also in the end of Parsha Vashanon. There's an interesting verse. It says there in the negative, it says that you're going to go into the, Moshe says, when you're going to go into the land, we read this on Tisha B'Av also. The Moshe Rabbeinu says that when you're going to go, your children and your grandchildren are going to go into the land. And if they don't behave, they're going to be destroyed, punished badly. Rashi says that the words, that they'll be so badly destroyed, doesn't need to be there in the verse. It, it, it didn't. It, you could say the same thing that it'll be destroyed without that verse, without that word. That word has a numerical value of eight hundred and fifty-two. Now, if you count up the years from when we got into Israel until the first temple was destroyed, you're going to see only eight hundred and fifty years. Not 852 years. Because when we came into the land of Israel, it says that Joshua, it took him seven years to conquer the land, seven years to settle the land. Then we, the temple, the, the traveling temple was in Shiloh for 369 years. Then it went to Nov and Givon for another 57 years. 14, 369, and 57 is only 850. But that word, Vinashantam, adds 852. This shows that we weren't so bad that the promise, that not promise, but like kind of the prophecy of Moshe was saying is that for 852 years, you're going to be so bad and you're going to lose it. It happened at 850 to show, to minimize how bad that we weren't that bad. In other words, it was like a gift almost that Hashem gave us that He brought the exile two years earlier. So how crazy it is to think like that. But sometimes when the bad comes to drop earlier, it, sh- it shows sometimes on something positive. So the point is that all this will nullify the whole exile. The, and in other words, the comfort is that what happened of its destruction is only there to bring a double portion, one even, and the, to make it even to what we lost, and then the second comfort is even to be double portion. And he concludes that through our service and servicing Hashem, throughout the generation of the exile, we're going to merit to have all this in a revealed way, the double comfort, nachmu, nachmu, in a way that it says, anoichi, anoichi, misnachemchem, that it's, it's, it's double Expression, he says, I, I will come comfort you with the coming of Mashiach. The Rebbe brings down in a Mimer elsewhere that when Hashem gave us the Torah, he said only once Anochi that we were in the desert. But in the land of Israel, he says it twice, Anochi, Anochi. I, I will come. Double expression means not just equal, but even way, way more. This Sicha, the Rebbe spoke the Sicha over three Fabringans. That's how long it took to analyze this whole thing. It was a Fabrengen on the 20th of Av when he made the Siyum 
on the conclusion on the tractate of Makos for the memory of his father's yard site, which is today, Chafav, the 20th of Av, and the Shabbos following on Parsha Eikim, and the following Parsha on Re'eh in 1974. Yeah. Last year, it was the 20th of Av, I had the honor to go along with my all my brothers, and we flew on a private plane to there was from New York. There was a, organized a big private plane to go to Kazakhstan, to the city where he was exiled, the Rebbe's father, and that's where he died there. And we traveled there, and we got to uh, pray there um, on the day of his yard site. Today, this year, a few hundred people also went to future private planes, and people went there to pray. But it's an amazing experience to go there and to see this, how he was buried there, literally in exile in the cemetery. It's full of the goyim all around them. They made a, a, his own. You know, oh hell of, of brick walls around it. But it's it's heartbreaking to see this. And it's from the raked ground that will come out the greatest beauties. And that's the parts that we have to remember. From the exile that his father, Rebbe's father was in, and he couldn't write down any Torah. And the Rebbe's mother went and made ink from strawberries and other leaves. And he was able to use this ink and write on the margin of his com- of his set of Kabbalah that he had. And she preserved it and brought it. And eventually it came to America. And we have it there. And we could study it. It's, it's the deepest stuff of Kabbalah. But it, where did it come from? From the greatest, deepest exile that he was in. So with this, we'll conclude.